think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And either they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 14 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 15th episode. Lucky number 15. Lucky number 15. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Etienne Rainville. Uh, we, we sort of decided that we're going to start doing that more often, hopefully every episode, unless we forget, which we, we do that all the time with lots of things, but that's fine. <laughs> we will forget. Uh, and if you want to know our bios, etc., why you should be listening to us at all, uh, you can find that on looneypolitics.com slash boys in short pants. Correct. And a thank you to Looney Politics for hosting that and for featuring us once in a while. Absolutely. It's immensely appreciated. Okay, so today, this is a very, very wonky episode. So if you guys love documents, <laughs> if you guys love policies, uh, if you love documents about policies and policies about documents, this is going to be your episode. Literally policies about documents. But we are going to start off spicy and at a crisp 420 degrees with uh, upcoming marijuana legalization. Woo! So not, not, woo! Yeah. Uh, not actually a huge deal for either of us because neither of us are, are fans of the, the devil herb and uh, never really have been. I don't know about you, Etienne. No, but, no. Not, not particularly. So, I, I, like, this is good for me. Like, I think it's like, hooray. I think it's bad that people go to jail for something basically harmless. Yeah, I generally have a pretty libertarian take on these things. Yeah, I continue to think, however, that it is bad that people go to jail for something basically harmless, so I'm not a fan. Let's back up. Uh, the liberal government introduced this last week uh, legislation that would uh, legalize marijuana. And the le- Cannabis Act. The Cannabis Act, and leave it to... I'm surprised it wasn't the Marijuana Act with an H. <laughs> we were just reviewing some Harper documents before starting this, and they spell it that way, which is very fitting. Anyway, um... Yes, they're legalizing it, and it's going to be left to the provinces to regulate, uh, which should be, like, fun. So I'm sure in Ontario it'll be, like, you have to, like, apply, and then you get, like, a library card, and you have to go to, like, one thing that's open, like, for five goddamn minutes. It jumps through several hurdles. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Ontario, uh, like, Alberta, they're just going to shoot it at you out of a cannon or something. <laughs> Alberta or Ontario has to be wide enough, widely enough available for them to get that sweet, sweet tax money off That is it. true. So that is true. It might, in fact, be the most widely available province at the Sobeys, if, maybe. if only to get the money from it yeah but we'll we'll find out at any rate um we want to talk more about the the legislative side uh and like i said the one thing that they're not doing is a sort of like decrim in advance of legalization thing yes, which is kind is, of unfortunate this is the classic ndp yeah, complaint it, of I, the past year i will fully admit that this is absolutely party line but i happen to agree with the party line on this um, yep. <laughs> collecting those shield bucks <laughs> Um, no, it, it is actually pretty unfortunate, I think, because, like, Justin Trudeau... Remember when he announced his whole, like, oh, yeah, pot, we're going to legalize pot? Was like He was like, yeah, smoke weed. What are you going to do about it? I mean, just contextually, I think it's funny because it was literally the first policy announcement of yeah, the liberal... Exactly. ...quote-unquote campaign at that point because it yes. was completely off the cuff. He was on campus and someone, like, yelled the question at him and he's like, we're going to legalize pot. Yeah, and then he told the whole story about how he smoked at, like, a dinner party... Uh, among other fine. things but yeah it's just annoying because Justin Trudeau thinks it's fine for him to smoke pot but if he got caught I suppose he would have been fine with him going to jail for it because that's what his government's position on this is pending legalization so anyway uh, we didn't, neither of us actually care about this that much besides I think that point I think we're actually, we actually agree on this that like they should decriminalize before legalizing probably yeah probably okay well there, you guys heard it here first the Tanza socialist now 
Easy, slow down, slow down. So, uh, but we wanted to talk about the actually interesting part of this, which is uh, procedure. Yeah, I mean, what I always find interesting in watching these announcements roll out is sort of the procedural side of things and how common announcements take place. Yeah. Um, as well as the policy. The policy is interesting, but, you know, people will write at length about the policy. Um, what I think is sort of interesting about this one, it's a good opportunity to sort of uh, rehash this point. So to speak. Is... <laughs> Not even intentional. <laughs> is that so? The policy announcement uh, took place on a Friday. They often is when the government is trying to bury it, which clearly they haven't been sort of loud and proud on this announcement. Um, any announcement that's made on Friday, I think, is a safe bet that the government's not. Yeah, garbage can day. That is garbage can day. They're trying to bury a little bit. They're trying to minimize media availability, especially on a long weekend. Dub- double down on yeah. uh, on factors that would limit media. Um, but it's always interesting, uh, I think, procedurally to watch how these events roll out because usually about three to four days before the announcement is when the government or senior government officials will leak uh, some of the details of what will be in the upcoming bill. The bill only technically becomes a bill when it is placed on the order paper. And this happens about 48 hours before it's formally tabled. Yeah. So in this 48-hour window where the bill is placed on the order paper, but it has yet to be tabled in the House of Commons, uh, it is actually a breach of parliamentary privilege, which is to say illegal, quote, well, unquote. not illegal. Not, not, not illegal, but, but... It would be bad. Yes. Yeah. Um, for... Uh, the government or officials to speak on this legislation yeah. and to leak elements of the bill once it has been tabled. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of tricky balancing act between they can pre-leak some things, but once the bill, or sorry, not once it's been tabled, once it's been put on the order paper, it, it's a parliamentary matter. It's a uh, parliamentary yeah. matter, and it's a breach of the supremacy of parliament for anyone to begin leaking the details of the bill. So in terms of making an announcement, it it sort of sets up this awkward tension where you'll have an announcement sitting in the works, like partway through, ready to go, waiting for the bill to be formally tabled. Placed in in the order paper. Or no, or tabled. Tabled. Tabled in the House of Commons. Gotcha. So So that's when it basically like becomes the thing that is being discussed. Yes. It's when it gets the bill number and can suddenly be announced. Right. Um, so an example of this is say, let's let's use the marijuana legislation just for illustrative purposes or the Cannabis Act. So the Cannabis Act uh, was tabled sometime in early afternoon Friday, somewhere between 12 and 1 o'clock. And so their formal announcement of uh, what was in the bill could not come until it was tabled. So say you were having an announcement just for illustrative purposes in Vancouver you would be sitting in Vancouver with your minister ready to go, with the press standing out there, and you would have a staffer on his phone literally waiting until the bill was technically tabled, and that would be your green light to have your minister walk out. Right. So you'd be sitting there on your BlackBerry sort of biding your time, like all the media's waiting. You say, okay, not yet, not yet, (laughs) not yet. Okay, I've got the green light. Go ahead and make the announcement. Gotcha. So just procedurally in terms of how these sorts of announcements roll out, I think it's sort of interesting to look at this. There was a pretty high-profile example um, of about a year ago when the assisted dying legislation was set to come out. 
there were allegations that the liberals had breached parliamentary privilege in that Laura Stone, a Globe and Mail reporter, had gotten details of the bill sort of in this window and had more details than she should have had. And so there was an investigation at Proc. It was a matter of privilege and it became a big, uh, big issue, but it ultimately sort of died and fizzled and went away. Yeah. Because, I mean, what can they actually do? So, PROC, it, it depends. In a majority government, or sorry, in a minority government, it might be a little different. Mm. Uh, because it's uh, the committees are dominated by liberals, it's right. always hard to call the witnesses you want. Uh, but I believe the conservatives tried to call senior members of PMO, uh, the chief of staff, Katie Telford, individuals like this, to appear at committee. I believe the liberals shot down these witnesses. Um, but it's still a bad look right. to be tr- having the opposition sitting there trying to call yeah. your senior staff for leaking documents and breaching parliamentary Well, privilege. and the breach, of, like the stuff, the parliamentary hijinks that can happen. I remember actually during the Harper government, there was the whole satellite offices thing yes. with uh, the NDP. Yep. And uh, the conservatives at one point managed still, to... still ongoing. Still ongoing. Managed to get a... Managed to get Tom Mulcair to be called as a witness for Board of Internal Economy, I think. Okay. Um, and that ended up being mildly embarrassing because they kind of caught them on the back foot, sort of did it when no one was watching. Uh, and, you know, the NDP, you know, was is, is pretty clever and has since upped their, their house game. But, uh, yeah, no, that was... Uh, you can really... If you mess up with uh, parliamentary privilege or sort of breaches relating to legislative etiquette or procedure, you can get hit pretty hard and they can, they can make it sing. Yeah, these, these are very much issues that stay within the bubble. I, I don't yeah. think your average Canadian in Alberta or Saskatchewan... Well, I certainly wasn't following this stuff before I moved here. So. No, knows anything about parliamentary procedure, but in, inside the bubble, it's a big deal. And a lot of uh, journalists, especially the parliamentary-oriented journalists, yeah. like Caddy O'Malley, yeah. and uh, some of those are very, like, follow the stuff religiously. Yeah, so. well, and they're, they're good at their jobs because of that, I think. Absolutely. It certainly helps. Okay, uh, there was a piece in Policy Options... Uh, today? Yeah, it was just today, actually. We're recording this uh, Tuesday the 18th. Um, from Alex Marland, who wrote a quite good book called Brand Command, uh, which is a great name. A uh, hefty, hefty little novel. A hefty tome, yeah. And it's about uh, sort of the increasing use of brand sort of mentality and marketing techniques uh, in government and sort of how that connects to a permanent campaign mode. Um, so it was an interesting little piece. Uh, he's talking about how the liberals are still using kind of what he calls campaign style tools for government communications and how a lot of it is still fairly centralized. Um, and as I, I joked on Twitter earlier today that this Mar- is a very, very accurate joke. Marland is like a really good giraffe specialist who can tell you any fact you like about giraffes, any fact. But he just cannot get over the fact that they have incredibly long necks. But they have really long necks. (laughs) So my my point with that is that he is really, like, he's very perceptive. And I think he gets the way government works in ways that a lot of political scientists especially uh, do not. But he can't quite, like, get over them. Like, he's like, wow, these basic operational details are so fascinating. And it's like... I get why that is, but at the same time, it's kind of like, this is not new, and it makes a lot of sense. So, the, the specific one I'd refer to, the specific, the, the analogy to the long neck, refers mostly to what you'll hear some people call the MEP, 
what we refer to as the MEP, which is the message event proposal. The message event proposal is a basic planning document implemented during the Harper years, and it would flow from the it's department checklist. to the minister's office, to PMO, to PCO, as a checklist before you have an event to make sure that everything's on track, yeah. that, you know, there's a point to this event. Yes. I think that's really the big part of it, is it's basically like making uh, politicians and civil servants ask themselves, is there like an actual point to what we're announcing here? Like, how does this tie... And this is the point Marlon makes. How does this tie into central government messaging, right? So if you're a conservative government and you're announcing a, like, I don't know, uh, throw... You know, drug users off bridges or something. And it's like, ah, yes, this ties in with our, our theme of, you know, safe communities. Because everyone knows that communities are safer when... I, I raised some objection to these examples. <laughs> but let, let me give an actual example. So I've, I've pulled up a map. Uh, maps have been endlessly A-tipped. Yeah. And so there's tons of examples of these things floating around on the internet. And yet they are still, for Marlin and for many, hyped up to be this document that I frankly don't think they are. Like, before I read some of the details of this map, let me read you a headline from the Toronto Star. And, yeah, fair. It is the Star, but it is... It yeah. is well, it's actually, it's Toronto Star, but it's a Canadian press piece oh. titled, Documents Expose Harper's Obsession with Control. Well, the paper writes the headline. That That is fair. Yeah. In, in reference to maps. And then I've got a map here uh, titled, Proposed... Marijuana with an H for medical. Hey, it's coming back <laughs> for medical purposes regulation. It's a map from uh, December 2012, released under the Access to Information Act, and it starts out with uh, categories such as event, strategic objectives. Let me read you one to demonstrate that the government is making changes to improve its controversial medical marijuana access program. Marijuana. Key stakeholders: uh, Was the minister's regional office contacted? Yes or no date that they were contacted desired this is, picture this is actually the best part i think it's that they really like and i think for people who, who care about how communications works and are like interested in the granularities it's like really asking the people who are putting on the event like what exactly it is they want to get out of it so like what is the image you want what are the key messages you want to get out uh, like, what are the sound bites you want in the media the next day? What is the dress? What is the tone? What is the length of speech? <laughs> Actually, the tone is the best part for this one. It just says, serious, positive. positive. <laughs> Key messages. So, overall, you, you might think from that that this map is very long, but it's not. It's a page and a, a fifth. Yeah. And it includes, like, several charts, a little checklist, and most of the responses are, like, small bullets or one-word answers. Yeah, it's very generously spaced. You'll have to excuse the noise, by the way. Ottawa seems to have run into the, the spring-cleaning frenzy of... Uh... God, there was one going by, like, not even 20 minutes ago. <laughs> like, this is crazy. Okay, and we are back after a short break because of the street cleaning that is happening. Hopefully it's passed for now. Yes, but now, now we're basically the strategists, and we've also had to cut something because of... Uh very loud electric apparatus going on immediately outside the window. Um, so where were we? We were ranting about maps. Yeah. So when, when I was in government, I filled out maps. I, I didn't think that they were particularly burdensome. Um, we often joked that we would win the election if only we had more maps. Mm -hmm. um, like the civil service. And, and so what, uh, what Marlin goes on to say is basically the civil service has not formally replaced map, but informally replaced maps. They still yeah. use similar strategic planning documents. And frankly, 
it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. This is sort of have has largely been one of my issues with the narrative of Stephen Harper as this like communications dominant uh, in terms of communications is that if you look at other governments that you know existed in this same uh, same time span regardless of political orientation the Obama administration is one of them. Yeah. They developed similar techniques. Yeah. That because the nature of communication changed so much yes. between 2006 yes. and 2016, that governments went through basically a revolution in how they communicated with yeah. people. And so attributing that to any particular government, I think, is wrong. And I will say two things to, to respond to that. The first is that that is true, and I agree with the basic point. I do think that the Harper government probably went overboard on some things. All right. Especially... We, can, we can just end the episode there. <laughs> <laughs> especially on science issues, I, I will say, like, I think there were a lot of, like, you know, the, the muzzling of scientists was not, like... This, this is a that, whole side uh, issue that we don't have time for No, today. okay. Well, we, won't get, we won't go there today. I just think it's real, and uh, it is important. At any rate, the other thing was that the prime minister before Stephen Harper, of course, was Paul Martin who, this was not his style at all. Paul Martin really did not care all that much about, like, this, like, incredibly tight message discipline thing. He, like, the best example is um, the health summit that they did uh, with the premiers while Harp, or while uh, Martin was prime minister. Uh, they televised the whole thing, and, like, including, you know, swearing at each other, etc., like, on the floor of, like, the negotiating room. It, I mean... You can't imagine Harper doing that, nor can you imagine Trudeau doing that, for that matter. Uh, it's just inconceivable. Like, government has changed so much, and it's just not their style. Martin, I don't think this was a high priority for him. He was very much a backroom kind of guy. Um, so I think the shift has a lot to do with kind of the, the shift in perception there, and that there was a quite dramatic change, but that's not necessarily because the person before was, like, doing what was optimal either, in their case. I think Martin probably was a little too lax. No, I, I think that's fair. Uh, but being said, I'll sort of revert to my earlier point, that if you are planning any event, yeah, um, if it's, you know, your community bingo hall, like pizza night, whatever, like a sleepover for your kids, it could probably be better organized if you used a map. <laughs> what are the images you want? What, are the... what, what is the ideal picture? Well, the girls are going to be lined up eating popcorn, and this will go on my Instagram account. There you and, go. Like, it's a basic planning so document. Actually, yeah, if you want to up your social media game, think about maybe do a map before you, you, can, you go somewhere. You can submit, submit your maps to us for your family vacation. Yeah, we'll be, uh, we'll be happy them. to review and edit them. We'll grade, yeah. We should have done a map before going to Broadbent. That would have been great. Yeah, if only, if only we'd done a map before this podcast, it'd be better organized. Also, also that, yeah, no, it's really anything. Um, also, more broadly, though, I think, like, Marlon's kind of central insight in his book, not so much this piece, is the kind of brand command which is the name of the book and it, it's kind of a dumb name and i really like just saying it brand command it's fantastic brand uh, command isn't it it sounds like a robot it's right? very robotic yeah it's good anyway um it he's basically right i think is the, is the upshot of it that that like governments now establish a central brand and that he really takes the conservative government of like you know the strong stable whatever Conservative, uh, strong, stable, conservative, conservative major national, national, national. That got dropped somewhere along the yeah, way. I think it's after the the separatists in two thousand eight. They added mm. they added uh, the national majority crisis. government. Yeah, uh, but that sort of thing was actually like important, right? And there was all the Tim Hortons stuff and the sort of like strong communities and strong economy, uh, it, right? Because when you think of conservative party, 
you think of a couple of things. If you're you know less generous like myself, they're probably different than what Etienne thinks, but they come back to the themes that they kind of want us to think about, like with the issues that they sort of own and the sort of like center of their identity is like what you'd call in the, the commercial world or the business world brands, right? Like, you know, our brand is being irreverent and lively. Uh, the liberals' brand is being sunny and, I don't know, uh, innovation somewhere in there, infrastructure? Anyway. Bad, bad with money. Bad with money, yes. Um, so, but it, I think it's a really, really important core concept, and it kind of ties into how the MEPs do this. Like, they will always ask, how is what we're doing right now serving to build or reinforce our brand as a political party and as a government? And I think that's some a place where the conservatives got in trouble sometimes, where they were perhaps a little too eager to conflate the political party with the government. And actually what Marlon talks about in this uh, this piece in Policy Options, too, is that the liberals have established... The, people remember, like, the um, economic action plan things that were, like, announcing stuff that hadn't been passed by Parliament yet, that kind of thing. Partisan advertising was a concern. And they have... Like, the liberals have introduced new rules about this that make it a little tighter. But what they've kind of done to sort of get around that is use social media, which isn't really advertising, because you're not, you know, paying for it. And it's not really, like, the same sort of thing. But they're using it to kind of get around it a little bit in kind of edgeways, and that's sort of what he talks about. It is a really interesting piece, actually. I will post it in the the notes, and I would recommend you read it. And we'll tweet it too. And we'll also tweet it. Um, but yeah, that that's sort of a. Uh, I think it's a really good insight into the philosophy of government right now, and that not only are they, you know, push it. Is, not only is government you know, governed from the center, which is sort of like an old trope uh, that's probably 20 years old now, uh, Donald Savoie's 1997 book, Governing from the Center, uh, that basically PMO more or less controls the whole of government and keeps a tight leash on everything, which I think is kind of broadly correct. It might be a little overstated in Savoie's kind of pushing of it, but he's got a point, and I think Marland really ties into how communicate the communications revolution Etienne talked about has really, really, really reinforced that tendency. Out of necessity. Out of necessity. I mean, yeah, if you run a government, you know, it's the same thing with campaigns. I think people often say, like, if someone takes you off message for two days, that's like a $20 million mistake. Not, not or that however much. much money. We're not American. Yeah, I know. It's like a million-dollar mistake. A million-dollar yeah, mistake. It's like a million dollars a day. A day, a a day you're campaign. on defense is a day you're not building your brand and uh, you know, promoting selling, your message. Selling your message. Selling. All that money for the plane and the rental bus and everything else. Putting is, your face on it. Is being squandered for the man berating journalists in the, uh, in the back row. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that guy, the angry guy. Anyway, uh, that, that'll, that'll do it for, for Marlon for today but it would actually read read the piece read the book if you can it, it's quite good look up some maps and judge for yourself yeah how, how tyrannical they truly are yeah they're, they're not that bad anyway other big news of the last couple of weeks uh canada has a new internal trade agreement in fact it's a canada free trade agreement which is kind of a sad name that we sort of need our own trade agreement with ourselves the fact that this needs to exist boggles my mind on yeah. a daily basis yeah. i wake up in the morning and i think why do we need our own free trade agreement why is it easier for brewers in ontario to export their beer to the united states the river into quebec hell it's hard for them to sell it in ontario among among many <laughs> issues i have yes i actually do believe it when he says that this is the first thing he thinks of waking up um hashtag free the beer yeah. there's there's my <laughs> party line pitch today there you go uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts on, on the new free trade agreement? I mean, 
I was pretty excited for it. I thought it was going to be more than it was. Sure. Uh, how many we, pages of exemptions is there? Like 200 plus? Um, it's a lot. 135 pages. 135 pages of exemptions. We should we should probably outline the, the core of the arrangement, which is basically that we've now moved to a negative list uh, for like exemptions for internal trade agreements. So basically, everything is permitted if it is not expressly forbidden. Uh, and that leads to 135 pages of exemptions. And that's actually divided into two categories. That's carve-outs from like present regulations and future ones, which is basically like reserving the right to make policies or new regulations in certain areas governing commerce uh, interprovincially or internationally. Um, there are some really fun ones in here, and we will get to those because I think we, we got to leave you with a little treat after this fairly wonky piece of work this Conversation, week. yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I think I think you're broadly right that like this is you know they could have they could have gone further but that said though and yeah there there are a lot of ridiculous ones in here i think managing the pace of change on this kind of thing is not necessarily the worst worst idea in the world i've said this before on supply management i wouldn't be this a sad i wouldn't be sad to see it go but i do think that it's legitimately important to carefully manage the pace of change so that people who rely on it and not so much people who rely on, but even their communities that rely on them. I feel less bad for the actual dairy farmers. Like, need some time to adjust to this. Um, I think, you know, there, there's a great book of, of political theory called The Great Transformation by Carl Polanyi. That's another book you should read. Actually, it's fantastic. But he talks about how, like, I won't go too much into it, but, like, in the early modern period, uh, like, English monarchs managed to carefully manage the pace of change with, like, enclosures... Uh, and it worked well once and then worked less well during the Industrial Revolution. And that's why you had like what uh, Mills or uh, John Stuart Mill called the satanic mills of, uh, of industrial England. So, I mean, we're not going back there. It's not going to be that bad. But like, I think managing the pace of change so that you don't get social dislocation for some things is like totally a worthwhile policy objective. Yeah, I... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, like, I will just point to one of these exemptions, like, some of these carve-outs, like, there is one where, in Ontario, only a resident may be issued a license for taking of bullfrogs for sale or barter. In Quebec, there's one where only a Quebec racehorse, as defined in the rules respecting the breeding of Quebec standard-bred racehorses, can be entitled to a privilege or advantage. Ontario has a limit of 292 wine racks. I bet you didn't know that. I, I didn't before today. It's uh, there are some really dumb ones in here, so I will I will say that. That's but. sort of my point. I feel and and why I push back on you with managing the pace of change. It's Perhaps just, we are over managing. <laughs> I don't feel like I get that with I get that argument if you're going to apply it to supply management. Yeah. And where there's like a legitimate thing where that would like actually hollow out communities if you got rid of it in one go. So there's that, yeah. but there's also the uh, international component to sure. it, where I don't think I, I stand to be corrected, but I don't think there are many industries within Canada, particularly alcohol, um, as one of the most offended yeah. industries in this agreement. I have no defense for that. <laughs> is is at risk of no like small brewers going out of business? Well, in fact, because like, more liberalized trade for small brewers and small is, winers is would a be very phenomenally good, good for them. Yeah, like but no con- no province can get over its own protectionist measures. The, uh, the reason I suspect is because of tax dollars. 
that having to liberalize the trade of alcohol would having yeah. to would mean having to change would would mean having to crush the beer store yeah. as it operates today. Which would be awesome. As well as which is of course the uh, the beer outlet. The private oligopoly in uh, <laughs> in Ontario yeah, as well amazing. as the LCBO, which is Liquor Control Board of Ontario, which are big tax rep, tax yeah. slash corporate welfare machines. Yep. Well, and also very powerful lobbies, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, and yeah. so no government has uh, has taken it upon itself to do much. I'll, the, I'll put a little asterisk on this yeah. liberal government, as this liberal <laughs> government yeah. has taken a small step forward, not as much as I'd like, but a small step forward to uh, put introduce beer and wine, beer and soon to be wine, or maybe presently now wine, into grocery stores. Yes. And with my, stupid hours. Like. With stupid hours and insane, ridiculous rules. But you know what? It's there. It's a start. And 75% of the time, I want to go to the grocery store and buy beer at my near my house. Yes. It's available. So yes. I thank them for this small incremental change. Ah, see. Well, the, the Ontario Liberals uh, get the ringing Etienne endorsement. I am unfortunately not one of the 5% of people in Ontario <laughs> who support them. Ouch, yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's the internal trade agreement. I think uh, there there's some good things in here. I think internal trade, broadly speaking, pretty good. I think it would be good for lots of industries. It's not all of them. Like you know, there's probably like industries in the Maritimes that kind of like you know exist because they don't have to compete with Alberta or something. And that would be sad if like a small town who's like shoe factory or whatever. I I would just pause it that you could burn ninety percent of the exemption pages and the agreement would be better off. I am inclined to agree with you on that, but not the bullfrogs. No, save save, save the, the bull. Bullfrogs. Yeah, obviously the bullfrogs are non-negotiable. Also, there's one in here from the federal government that a non-Canadian residents can't own more than twenty-five or fifty percent, depending on the company, of a few companies that have interests in like producing nuclear power. <laughs> and uranium. Fair. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but there you go. Uh, interesting one for the the feds. So to put the capstone on an episode that's been about documents about policies and policies about documents, we want to get you a document that is both. Does that make sense? Anyway, uh, we're going to talk about memora- memoranda to cabinet, which are really like one of the central kind of like operating cornerstones of how cabinet makes decisions and sort of conducts the business of government at the executive level absolutely termed mcs mcs is what everyone calls them so do not say memorandum to cabinet to people they'll probably give you a blank stare or be like why did you say that everyone just calls them mcs and you'll feel out of the loop and sad it's a it's a mouthful uh so mcs happen or they sort of prepared Whenever cabinet or a cabinet committee and we i think we've talked a little bit about the structure of cabinet before i think episode four i believe We'll put that in the notes later. The notes are going to be voluminous this week. Uh, about, like, anything basically that comes up. Any sort of, like, decision they need to make, whether it's, like, are we going to support this private member's bill? Like, are we going to approve this forthcoming legislation? Are we going to accept the, the results of these international negotiations? Are we going to introduce a new policy or make a change to a program? It's kind of like a whole suite of, really, any potential change you'd think of that would sort of be non-routine yeah it's, it's the most significant things um so like small inter uh departmental policies obviously don't make it there yeah but anything that's like a substantial government policy or future legislation or yeah. something that was in the platform uh frankly. yeah yeah so basically what happens with these is that a minister decides that they want to do something 
as they as they often do they're ambitious people they're people with you know large bureaucracies that can sort of cater to their whims they have offices of people telling them they're great they like to do stuff uh so when a, and a minister decides they want to do something they sort of talk you know they'll, they'll sort of get the idea you know they'll talk to the prime minister or pco or pmo and sort of like okay like is this fine and then they'll go to their department and they'll talk to their staff in the department or rather the departmental staff not theirs uh and start putting together the draft like the draft of the mc and that's usually put together by the civil servants so they're closely collaborating with the minister's office kind of throughout sort of collaboratively put together by the political side and the civil service side um to sort of have this document take shape and then also there's usually if depending on the area if it's like related to a major platform promise or even has like major interdepartmental considerations they'll run it through pmo and pco as well as probably another department if it sort of crosses over into their territory sometimes the final document will be signed by you know it, the sponsoring minister but also sometimes another one if the the overlap is significant enough yep so from sort of the drafting process the department will deliver um an mc that the minister then signs uh this mc is also comes with a deck which is a presentation it's usually like printed off powerpoint slides very not fancy um and then it's distributed through what's called uh through pco called cabinet documents and it's sent to every minister on the cabinet committee and they have a couple days to review the mc and the deck um before the minister presents it at cabinet yeah and so cabinet the the presentation of cabinet how cabinet operates and sort of the internals of it is like pretty variable yeah uh based on the cabinet committee and who the ministers are uh, I think it's significant to note that the prime minister is sometimes rarely in on the meetings. Yeah. Um, depending on which prime minister we're talking about. They all it, have different styles, so this kind of stuff changes every couple of years. But Yeah, there have been a lot of books written on sort of insider takes on how different cabinet committees, the dynamics on them yeah. work. But su- suffice it to say, they take it to um, committee, and then it's sort of informally voted on and feedback is produced. And what will be on, of the many sections in an MC, the most significant one is the recommendation, the ministerial recommendation, um, which is what the minister wants everyone in cabinet to choose. And then there's a couple other options. Yeah. So to to give you an example here, uh, say our minister wanted to increase the lobster quota for the year. And that was, he was pitching, and the entire MC will be written about you know, reasons why to increase the lobster quota. Yeah. Well, it's like the, the sections, right? It's made, the, the minister recommendation is like the big part of the MC, and it itself is broken up into the issue, which is basically like whether or not we should increase the lobster quota this year. Also, always fisheries and oceans with you, the examples. It's, it's, you know it's why? Ingrained. You know why I pick fisheries and oceans? Because I know absolutely nothing about it, so no one could ever plausibly accuse me of like having inside information I mean, on that's it fair. or like using. It's like, I know nothing about fish. Fair enough. Nothing. No, no, not my specialty either. So, uh, except eating them. Anyway, uh, so the, yeah, the issue is like whether or not we should do X. Rationale is saying here are the reasons we should. Usually, they're saying we should do something. Should do X. The proposed approach is tends to be kind of the the rationale is like the analytical meat of it, saying like here's why action is needed. Proposed approach is saying here's what I think we should do, and that's going to have like costing. It's going to be fairly detailed. That said, though, MCs don't tend to be incredibly granular. They're basically approvals in principle, and then 
it'll go back to the departments and question for kind of like refining and implementing and all the details sort of get hammered out later. Um, but there's, there's some approach to like envelope math, if you will, to like basically get the sort of big things kind of sorted in principle. Uh, and then there will be other options. Uh, these are usually the, this is actually where bureaucrats can kind of play games with you. If you're, if you're asking for something, I had a conversation with a former premier of Saskatchewan uh, at one point where he was mentioning that uh, often civil servants would like to, if they didn't want to make cuts and he had asked for some form of cut, he would say, they would, they would always come back with, well, you could cut the hospital, which of course is never really on the table, that sort of thing. So they're just kind of making stuff up in the hope that you will just gravitate towards their preferred option. So this is why actually, this is a time where having good political staff is really important because if that floats into the minister's office. A good staffer will say, that's not realistic. And they will have a chat with you know someone at the appropriate level and not circumvent appropriate channels. Um, and the civil service will come up with a better option. Uh, but that that's where political staff can be really useful. Sort of that challenge function of asking civil servants very pointed questions about whether what they're proposing is realistic or not. Uh, after the, the proposed approach and options, you have considerations. And this can really be a broad variety of things like is this illegal? Can we do it? Do we need new legislation? Uh, more recently, the Liberals have added a section on requiring a gender-based analysis, a GBA plus, as it's called. Yeah. Uh, and this basically is an analysis of like how does this impact different groups in the population? Would it have disproportionate impacts? Or that kind of thing. It's actually it's a good tool. Uh, first introduced by the Harper government, so it's not an SJW tool introduced by Trudeau. Um, sorry, conservatives, uh, you guys did it first. Though it was a good thing, so I'm happy you did. Um, so, I think Trudeau has just stepped it one further, yeah. and every MC has yeah. a GBA plus option. Yeah. Sometimes it can be pretty minimal. I would imagine, like the lobster quota. I, you know, I don't know what you would say. Very, for that. very gender <laughs> impactful. Yeah, exactly. It might. I don't know. Uh, um, we don't know anything about fish. It could be. Uh, and then there's due diligence, which is actually not really the minister's job, or really even like the, the staffers or the departmental staff who would be preparing this normally. It's the, the CFO, the chief financial officer, who sort of goes through and says like, "Yeah, there's a good faith effort to have done this properly, and like I think the costing is a bit like realistic." I think this was actually introduced by the Harper government, or at least strengthened, and it's it's a, actually a pretty good accountability measure to make sure that. You know, they're not just proposing things that are totally, like, out to lunch. So I think one of the takeaways, and you've sort of sort of alluded to it here, is that MCs are not by any means uh, mandatory. They're basically just convention. Yeah. The, the fixed MC format was introduced or at least solidified by Trudeau Sr. and has been built on yeah. by subsequent prime ministers who've seen it as a very useful tool. Yeah. Um, prior to Trudeau, uh, it was sort of all over the place. Yeah. It was it was very very variable. Um, subsequent governments have changed, added, removed parts as they've seen fit. But fundamentally, all it is is it's a template from which to compare different policies. Yeah, it provides you different sections that your policymakers, being your cabinet ministers, find useful. Yeah, in making compelling decisions. Yeah, the important thing is, is basically, when Trudeau Sr. implemented this, it was because they had what was called an envelope system for committees. So basically, each cabinet committee would have like a large wad of cash, and it would be up to those cabinet ministers, uh, sort of like with some PMO and prime ministerial you know, seal of approval on things, uh, but it was basically up to them, to a fairly large degree, how they were going to spend their envelope. 
So they would sometimes burn through it really quickly. But this sort of MC system would ensure that when they were meeting and people were bringing different proposals, they would be comparing apples to apples. It would all be comparable so they could make informed decisions on you know the sort of trade-offs of making some but not other decisions. Uh, and that's that's actually really the important thing is that way like everyone is like, kind of on an even playing field and you can't just come in with like something totally different that will just confuse everyone and people will just approve it because like well, I don't know what he's talking about but I don't want to sound smart. Ministers have big egos as I mentioned. Um, so that's why they sort of opted for this sort of consistent format and why that's remained in existence through the last 40 years. I, I think one of the other takeaways here uh, when you're reading the news, should be to consider how lengthy this process is. Uh, the best example of this is any policy that comes... To, to use an easy example, there was the recent United Airlines, and then debacle, and then Mark Garneau sort of followed up with uh, the government will soon be announcing policy on yeah. passenger bill of rights or something along these lines. Yeah. And to see one in response to the other, one is a direct response to the other, is wrong. Yeah, the policy like, side anyway. The, the tweet probably was. Yeah, the, the tweet or the communication yeah. side, fine. And perhaps a little bit about the timing. But all the work that goes into MCs results in government, and this is a, fundamentally a good thing, not being ultra-responsive to day-to-day events. Right. They can't be, to and some degree. It's like, they, it's they, a big organization. Big organization. There's a lot of steps involved. There has to be timed with these meetings. It's it's very, very complicated. Um, so when you see a government... Much like an airline, actually. Much like an airline. <laughs> so when you think about a government's policy cycle, this, this is really important to fit into it. When you're thinking about sort of the rationale and the timing behind which announcements are making, why won't government... Uh, Another example of this in practice would be, why won't a government take a stance on, you know, a common sense private member's bill? Yeah. Why won't the minister endorse, you know, the private member's bill that increases everyone's IQ by 10 points? Damn. It's because... It does sound good. (laughs) It's because it hasn't gone to cabinet yet. Yeah. It's because cabinet has not made a decision to formally endorse this, therefore the minister's hands are tied. Yeah. And so there's a lot of situations where people are trying to pressure... Uh, ministers or get responses from ministers or get them to comment on bills or bills, private members' bills, the easiest example, yeah. before it's gone to cabinet and they can't. Their, their hands are they tied. They have nothing to say about it. Yeah, exactly. They'll, they'll defer, they'll block, they'll dodge the question until it goes to cabinet and then the government can come out and declare their formal position on yeah. it. You should also mention the, uh, that's sort of the ministerial recommendation portion and that's really like the, the meat of it. There's also a fairly important part called the annexes, uh, which are the political side of the document, because the, the the first half is more centered on the policy of it, though there are like political considerations involved in there as well. But the second half is really like about how we're going to do this and how we're going to sell it politically. There's the implementation plan, which sort of gives a broad, like a rough timeline for okay, when do we want to hit certain milestones? The strategic communications plan, which is like the most explicitly political part, because it's saying how like what's our message on this? How does it sort of tie into our brand? I'm sure that was a, it's, it's sort of like a map. It's sort of like a big map in in your MC. It's sort of like a gigantic map, yeah. Uh, and then the parliamentary plan, which sort of gives you like, okay, so we're gonna by these dates we want to have it at these stages. Here's how we think we're gonna manage, you know, X tricky person on Y committee. 
that sort of thing. So really the nuts and bolts. Well, not so much nuts and bolts, but at least a, a strategic overview for how they're going to shepherd the legislation through Parliament. And nowadays, they, they just write question mark, question mark, question mark next to the Senate portion because no one knows what's going on there anymore. Um, yeah, so that's, that's it for the MC explainer. I hope that was informative for you. That's really like one of the most critical moving parts of government in terms of like executive decision making. Uh, and of course, it's different for every government. They're probably going to be more or less reliant on them. Some cabinet committees are going to be more influential than others. And the prime minister is going to be more or less directly involved in different things. So, you know, this is a template. <laughs> it's really sort of the, the ideal. It never really works quite 100% all this way in practice. But that's fine. That's just fog of war. That's the recurring theme for us is that government is never really as neat as the textbooks kind of put it. Nor as academics w wish it were. No, indeed. Marland included, though he is good. Uh, to wrap up today, uh, we wanted to call attention to something a little lighter. It was a very meat and potatoes episode. You guys really ate your veggies. So uh, we, we want to leave you with a little, little dessert. If you're still listening. Yeah, we, we want to leave you a little dessert. So, uh, Etienne, do you want to take us away on uh, Andrew Shear's uh, counting skills? Um... So I got my first piece of direct mail from Andrew Shear, my second of the campaign. That's and actually incredible, honestly. It is. I don't you know. Get like six a day from Blaney. No direct mail. Oh, direct mail, like paper. Oh, wow, direct okay. mail, paper. Gotcha. So I've only I've only received two paper uh, sort of advertisements in my inbox. The first one was from Kelly Leach. The second one from Andrew Shear, and he's posted a similar graphic to what I'm taking issue with on his Instagram account and probably some other social media accounts. And it's a graphic that has uh, poll numbers. It has Andrew Shear at 23%, Kevin O'Leary at 21%, and Maxim Bernier at 16%. Now, so you, it has Andrew Shear nine points ahead of Maxim Bernier. So if you've been following the conservative leadership race, that might be news to you. It was news to us, certainly. We were a little confused by this because it doesn't match any of the polling that has come out so far or sort of any of the, like... Broad conception of who's in the lead. Yeah. So... We were a little confused by that, but Etienne... Uh... In the fine print, it says the source is Political, which is a website I had only heard of like a week and a half ago from a uh, from someone, a Sheer supporter, who said that the Sheer campaign is very much into the political website and their and their poll and is really taking that as, uh, as the gospel. Unfortunately, when you look at Political, I think, I think sort of the front page of the website sort of sums up how... Yeah. Sort of professional it is, how trustworthy it is. And then when you look at the actual methodology of the poll, so let me, it's an abomination. Let me read to you how this works. Cast your vote by clicking a candidate's picture. One vote per computer per week is counted. You can sign up for email alerts. Uh, yeah. And then the full methodology is only one vote per IP address is counted per week. Only Canadian IP addresses are counted and multiple votes are automatically discarded. The results are ro rolled over a seven-day period. Votes from the same day of the previous week are deleted and replaced with updated results. Results are updated every night between 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. So you'd imagine from this methodology that it would be a little volatile. And in fact, it is because now O'Leary is in first place with 20% and Shear is in second with 19, tied with Bernier. So not super, super, super trustworthy. And I, I have no idea what the vote totals actually look like here. Um, so it only gives you a percentage. It doesn't tell you the yeah. number of. It doesn't tell you the end yeah. value, the number of votes. So that's unfortunate. But uh, because this is really funny and we think it's hilarious that the Sheer campaign is apparently using this as their official campaign tool. No, we know they're just doing this because the number's higher than everyone else's, <laughs> and they want to have. Yeah, you, you need a piece of good news. Yeah, you exactly. Need, you need something to throw in your uh, in your advertisements, and well, if you have a poll, yeah. no matter which poll. 
that yeah. says you're in the lead? Especially for Andrew, the underperformer sheer, uh, because he was expected to do much better than he really has. It's been a very lackluster campaign. A lot of his endorsements are going over to Aaron O'Toole. Uh, I think he wants a bit of splash to show, oh, hey, I'm still in contention. Please put me near the top of your ballot. Um, so actually, what we're going to do, we're going to run a Twitter poll for the bottom four candidates currently in the conservative leadership race, uh, according to the political conservative leadership tracker. Who are? Chris Alexander, Rick Peterson, Deepak O'Brien, and Andrew Saxton. And for the rest of the week, so I think until Thursday or Friday, we're going to listen to you, our listeners, as to who should be the winner. And uh, once we've arrived at a consensus or a clear winner, we're going to encourage you all to go vote for that person every day. Every day until the end of the conservative leadership race. So we can put, you know, Chris Alexander, Rick Peterson, Deepak O'Brien, Andrew Saxton in first place, topping O'Leary and Cheer, and that way they can put out... On a, your work computer, yeah. on your home computer, on your cell phone. Go nuts, folks. Yeah. Like, you have at least, you probably have at least three devices you can vote for Andrew Saxton Yeah, on. just do it at the coffee shop. Use the coffee shop's IP. Like, doesn't matter. Just Saxton, go, go nuts. Saxton, Saxton. <laughs> so that'll, that'll be fun. I think hopefully we can get... O'Brien mail out saying he's in first place. Uh, it'll be great. Uh, political, just for reference, spelled P-O-L-E-T-I-C-A-L. Dot com. Political.com. Dot com. Uh, so thanks so much for, for bearing with us this week, folks. That was uh, I hope you came away educated and stuffed full of the delicious, uh, nutritious education cabbage that we've been stuffing you with. Uh, I know I am. I know, yeah. I'm very full. Uh, so that, that will be it for this week's episode of The Boys in Short Pants. Uh, thanks once again for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at ShortPantsPod, and that is also where you can vote on our exciting running. And make sure to uh, rate and review the show on, uh, on iTunes or wherever this uh, podcast was found. Yes. And last but not least, guerrilla leadership is real. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. We'll, we'll go into this later more, <laughs> but uh, the guerrilla leader, subject of uh, episode 10, the 11th episode on guerrilla leadership, or at least mentioned there, uh, is announcing his bid for the NDP leadership officially this week. So stay tuned for that. It'll be excellent. Anyway, thanks, folks. Have a great evening. Hey, Dan. Take it easy. <laughs> <laughs>